Welcome to Point by Point, conversations, interviews, and legal commentary for today's business professionals. Brought to you by Waller. Welcome to Point by Point. This is your host, Morgan Ribeiro. On today's episode, we are joined by two industry advisors who are devoted advocates for improving end-of-life experiences for Americans. Nathan Kotkamp is the founder of National Healthcare Decisions Day and a partner in Waller's multidisciplinary healthcare industry team, which is comprised of more than 200 attorneys. Dan Morheim is an emergency medicine physician and a former member of the Maryland House of Delegates. He has been a leader in crafting legislation concerning healthcare, the environment, and streamlining government operations. He is also the author of two books on advanced care planning, including Preparing for a Better End, which is due for release this fall. Welcome, Nathan and Dr. Morheim. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much. So to get things started, I'll I'll start with you, Dr. Morheim. Can you provide our listeners with a brief overview of National Healthcare Decisions Day? What is it? When is it? Why is it important? National Healthcare Decisions Day is scheduled for the day after tax day, which has been April 16th historically. But this year, we get a second bite at the apple with July 16th, since taxes are due July 15th. Uh, Nathan Kotkamp has really been the driving force behind that. But its purpose is to raise awareness of all Americans that uh, the importance of completing advanced directives going through advanced care planning serves them, serves their community, and serves their family. Great. And and Nathan, you're the founder of this movement. Do you have anything else to add about why we are recognizing National Healthcare Decisions Day? Absolutely. First and foremost, it comes in response to a number of situations that I've seen throughout my career in my participation in hospital ethics committees and, and other things I do in the ethics world. It also is a direct reflection of the fact that we realize that sometimes people just need that little push, that little catalyst uh, to do something that is fundamentally very simple, but it's also really, really easy to put off or to avoid. So if for nothing else, we've chosen just an otherwise objective day and we've said, this is the day to do it and you have no excuses, so get it done. Uh, My perspective on this really starts as uh, my career as an emergency medicine physician. About 40 years, I've worked in primarily large hospitals and a trauma center for 25 years, but also rural hospitals. Navajo Indian Reservation and other places. And I found myself way too often doing procedures on patients that was closer to torture uh, than to actual care. And for the lack of completing free, legal, readily available paperwork, been around for 30 years, we just, as clinicians, don't don't know what patients want or even sometimes who to talk to about the patient that's before us. This applies pre-COVID, It's heightened by COVID because families are not at the bedside and it will continue post-COVID as well. We're a culture that says we recognize and value individual autonomy and individual rights, yet we somehow collectively abdicate on this task that could be done. And once you do it, you feel so much better about everything and you've taken care of this issue for yourself and your family. I mean, how how often can you get shift the likelihood in healthcare to get your own wishes and values respected? It's hard to do. And this is a simple, easy, straightforward way to get it done. Yeah, let me just add that another major driver of founding this event was talking with people in the general public and seeing these ethics cases unfold and realizing that that 
not having a plan, not having discussions with your loved ones results in terrible trauma to those who survive medical crisis. I'm always amazed when people will come up to me at a presentation and they'll say something like, when my mother died 20 years ago, we had to make decisions. And I will tell you that there isn't a day that goes by that I don't wonder whether we did the right thing for mom. And that is a, that's a common story. I know Dan sees it all the time. So that's, that's really the human element that was another driver. And I will also say, you know, as we're talking to our clients and institutional providers and things, there are structural elements to this. There's ways in which we can be doing better as institutions, better the way that we deliver care. If we just do some appropriate pauses and, and structure this advanced care planning conversation into the way that we do our business. And that has historically been lacking. And so that's another thing that we're trying to do is not only encourage the public to do this for themselves, but we want providers and institutions to be embracing the concept because for patients and their families to have planned ahead and done the work that they need to do, it doesn't do any good if it's not being adopted and integrated into care. So that's the other piece of this. Can I add a couple other things here? First of all, we all understand this is a hard topic. We are culturally averse to talking about end-of-life care, yet we're the first generation in human history that's empowered to actually do something about it. I mean, 100 years ago, even in my career as a doctor for certain conditions, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you kind of got dealt your cards and that was it. Now we have a whole new opportunity because people are living longer, happier, more productive lives. But I, when I do presentations, and I thought about this myself, and I would ask anybody who's listening to consider this. Imagine for a moment you're in the last days, hours, minutes of your life, probably going to get there unless it's a traumatic event. Where would you like to be? What situation? Uh, where are you physically? Who's around you? Just think about that. Now, I'm going to say most of us came up with, almost everybody comes up with, at home with my family and friends around me. Nobody says killed in a fiery car crash, plane goes down, shot in a drive-by, you know, safe say fell on my head while I'm walking down the street. Nobody says that. Everybody says the same thing. And you can have that. And we have been collectively cut off in this culture from those kinds of experiences. And I think if we fill them in and we have a little more personal experience that way, we're, we're all going to be better off. I do want to echo totally what Nathan said about the family disruption, because when an advanced care plan or advanced directive becomes operative is when you can't make your own medical decisions. If you're awake and alert and competent, you get to make them. It's really not just about you and our very me-oriented culture. It's really about taking care of the, the loved ones, because I, too, have heard many stories of people saying our family got conflicted, siblings stopped talking to each other. All these relationships got blown up. And you can see that in the, the case of Terry Schiavo. This is not, by the way, just for old people. The three most famous cases in medical legal history were women under 30. So when my kids turned 18, daddy gave them advanced directives to complete. But uh, uh, in the Terry Schiavo family, they were very close. And then they ended up, their spouse and her parents ended up at odds through a huge legal battle. That was a headline story, but this goes on every day in every hospital uh, in the United States, in every nursing home in the United States, and we could avoid that kind of conflict by completing simple free paperwork. Well, and I think, you know, echoing what you're saying, and Nathan, you mentioned this earlier, but I think for providers and healthcare organizations and institutions that do this, you know, deal with this every single day, you know, them being able to provide some guidance to patients, their customers who don't handle this every day. I think there's a way to really have a partnership in, in those discussions and encouraging those discussions earlier on. I definitely think they have a role to play in that and being an advisor in that that way. Nathan, going back to you, I, you know, you hear the term advanced care planning 
Could you share with our listeners what that term really means and how is that the same or different than a living will? Sure. It's it's sort of a range of things. And what we ultimately want is people to engage in a process. Ideally, advanced care planning is not a one and done sort of thing. Uh, and it goes way beyond just paperwork. So we, we talk about advanced care planning as the process. Advanced directives are the things that you put in writing. And they, they go into two primary categories. One is the appointment of an agent, somebody that will be your surrogate, will stand in your shoes and speak for you if you cannot speak for yourself. And that's probably the most important thing to identify because as as much as you can put down on a sheet of paper about the future, nobody's got a crystal ball. And so having someone that can interact with healthcare providers and really manage the dynamics of day-to-day care is so important. The second piece is what is traditionally known as a living will. And those are instructions about end-of-life care, medicines you would want, procedures you would or wouldn't want, things like that, um, usually sort of guideposts. We also encourage people to put in their in their living will portion things about their religious choices, their their feelings about what it means to be healthy, moral things, you know, whatever it would be, the guiding principles for making decisions for that individual. Ideally, it's all put in writing, but even if it's not put in writing, simply having these conversations is far and away better than having nothing at all. So you, again, it's just sort of tiers of, of things. And, and just following up on your comment just a moment ago about the integration and sort of the law piece, one of the things that we see within hospitals is almost 100% compliance with federal regulations that say you have to ask about advanced directives and offer free forms and things like that when patients are, are admitted to a hospital or a surgery center or dialysis facility, which is great. The problem is that the way in which compliance is achieved is the registration clerk makes that ask. They're not really trained to answer any questions if a patient has them in the first place. And then sort of the, the, the thinking is, oh, we've already asked that. So when the patient gets into the exam room or is admitted to the floor, the topic isn't revisited. And that's where we need it. It's not at registration point because what we need is integration into care. Um, so that's that's a, that's an example of where you can have compliance with the law at odds with what the ultimate goal of advanced care planning is. Let me add that there's uh, th- this is a something that starts with individual action. There's really nothing uh, legislatively that needs to take place, although in Maryland and many other places around the United States, we have recognized National Healthcare Decisions Day officially. But the paperwork is is around mydirectives.com, from your attorney, hospitals, online, state attorney general's offices, health departments, state medical sites, all these provide it. But there is an issue also that clinicians uh, like me, when I was training, we weren't oriented to recognizing advanced directives. In fact, the cultural ethos was don't ever let a patient die on your shift. You know, keep them going long past often any hope of recovery. And I've saw too many cases of that as, as well. So it really begins with individuals looking in the mirror, deciding this is important, completing the form, then having that form available. Available. It should not be in a safety deposit box. It needs to be shared with your loved ones, your attorneys, your advisors, uh, your clinicians, obviously. And then clinicians have to need to learn to honor them. And uh, we don't see them often enough in the emergency room. We're often confronted with patients in maybe a few minutes or a small amount of time, hour to make decisions. And we really don't know what to do. We'll always do something. We will do what we think is the right thing, but it may not have been the patient desired. So this is a, we're on a, a curve, I think, where this is becoming more accepted and more It should be normative. It should be the normal thing we all do when we're 18 years old or 20 years old, not this outlier thing. 
And and we do know that only about 30 or 40 percent of the American public has completed these because I did some of the research on this peer review published research. But it's also much lower in the minority population. And in fact, the American Journal of Public Health uh, identified it formally as a minority health disparity, a community that feels disempowered anyways. And here's an opportunity to gain a significant amount of empowerment. But I've seen things in my legislative and medical career that seemed outliers at the time and now are uh, normative. So wearing seatbelts was a big fight at one point. Kids in safety seats was a big fight at one point. Now they're they're normative. Nobody would think particularly we're trying to undo that. Uh, and now we have this opportunity to use advanced care planning, advanced directives, certainly for the silver tsunami, the baby boom generation, which I'm a part of, is going to have different set of demands and needs, but also has an opportunity here to uh, exert influence in a way that human beings and, and us have not had before. So so I see it as a good thing. It's not. It's actually about empowerment and values. It's not all doom and gloom. Now, let me say, too, I, I, I was in office for 24 years, six elections or 12 elections, primaries and generals. I'm out there on the street. Delegate Morheim, what are you working on? Your death, the death of everybody you know. Please vote for me in the next election. Not always the easiest line, but people really appreciated who's going to break the ice. It makes me think of Betty Ford talking about breast cancer. It made it possible for a lot of people then to begin to talk about that issue and not keep it hidden. This is the big issue of our time, complicated by dementia and COVID and other things, but we can uh, engage in it in a positive way that really the opportunity is right there before. So I think we're on a curve where people, this will, instead of being 30 or 40% of the population, will be 95% as, and I think Nathan knows the story of La Crosse, Wisconsin, a community that did take this on, has a 95% rate of completion advanced directive. They combine their medical, legal, and faith-based community. They have those conversations, and the results are that not only uh, are people much more uh, satisfied with their life and family experiences, but they also greatly reduce their health care costs, which is another aspect of this. Let me just add real quick, because we, we've talked a lot about uh, end-of-life issues and death and dying, which is obviously a hugely important and probably the majority situation where advanced directives come into play, but it's not limited to that. So there is increasing emphasis across the country on things like mental health or psychiatric advanced directives, people that are, let's just say, for religious reasons, don't want blood transfusions or would never want to have an amputation, as well as folks that want very aggressive care. A lot of people say, I don't want certain things. I want to die at home. But there's there's a portion of the population that wants the, the medical full court press. It's just as important for those that want everything to get it as it is for those that don't want things to not have care. And so the institutional way of, of addressing that, I think, is very simple and elegant. It's just to say every patient, every time we ask about who your agent is. And you know, there should never be a patient in the hospital for more than 24 hours if we don't know who their decision maker is. That should just be normal across the board. And it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to suggest to people that there's going to be a problem. But the reality is even inserting an IV carries risks of things like a stroke. So we can't think that just being admitted is benign. And so that reinforces the reason for institutional mechanisms for making it every patient, every time, totally normative. And the result is we're going to have happier patients. We're going to have more content families. And so those Press Ganey scores that everyone's so worried about and things like that, they're going to go up 
because patients are going to feel like they were valued when they come to your hospital. So yes, it is a little bit self-serving, but that's okay. Like we, we can harness that piece of it. It's also more efficient. We end up saving money, particularly if you're getting paid on a case basis to be able to direct care in a more efficient way can, can benefit the institution as well. So by no means am I saying this should be driven by financial interests, but we'd be foolish to ignore it given how much the cost of end of life care is so disproportionate to the rest of our healthcare spend. It has to be part of the conversation. We do have to talk about the economics, but as Nathan's absolutely correct, the most important reason to do this is by far and away the personal, family, spiritual uh, values get to be respected. And and you can choose, you know, of the three paths, you know, pull, pull the plug, so to speak, full court press, but most of us choose the middle path. Keep me going as long as I'm reasonably okay, pain-free, conscious, uh, aware of what's going on. And then if at some point allow natural death when things have run out. I mean, if I get some terrible cancer, I want all the, you know, everything the treatment has to offer. But if it's gone through all the treatment, I don't want to die a septic shock death in an intensive care unit. My family down the hall, you know, tied to machines for the last 10 days of my life. That's just not where I'm at. But the money part is significant. It, uh, Medicare is about eight or nine hundred billion dollars a year and about three hundred billion. And it's increasing uh, is spending the last months of life. Now, what you choose when you're 28, 38, 58 or 88 will be different things. And you can update your advanced directive anytime. Relationships change, your values change, your health conditions change. You just get a new form and complete it. And that's the one becomes operative and the others are, are uh, no longer in operation. But if we could save even 10 percent of that. That's a huge amount of money. And the traditional ways we save money in health care is what? We cut benefits to patients. We limit their choices. We put more burden on employers. There's cost shifting, greater deductibles, greater co-pays. You know, we can debate all of those. But here's one that the likelihood in the La Crosse, Wisconsin experiment, they reduced their costs uh, end of life care by uh, over a third, which is a huge amount of money, um, just by respecting people's individual values and letting them speak for themselves. It's a really unique combination where all these things come together and point in the same direction. Both of you have mentioned, obviously, the current pandemic. And Dan, what are your thoughts, given what's going on in the world around us right now? Has the pandemic changed your perspective on advanced planning? And what have you seen sort of on, on the ground, if you will? It's emphasized the greater importance of it. The pandemic certainly has, because now in most hospitals, the one I work in, where I'm on staff, families are not allowed often into the bedside. They can't get in the room. So I've often relied for years, families around the bedside, we can have discussions. If the patient can't speak for themselves, get identify who's who. Now I, I, we have to figure out who do we even call? because we don't want to call the wrong person. There are family dynamics that take place at end-of-life care or in any gathering, weddings, funerals, uh, serious illness, and you can't read it. People have these things bring up wounds and anxieties and tensions that may not have otherwise surfaced. And so we want to know who do we speak to and who speaks for the patient. And the advanced directive is a a very clear way to do it. In fact, I take it one step further. I suggest that uh, people put together their own little medical go bag, uh, list all your medicines, list your medical conditions, get a copy of your EKG, some recent lab tests, and your advanced directive, at least who your healthcare agent is, staple that together in a piece of paper and a few pieces of paper. And if you go to the emergency room, bring it with you and just hand it to the clinicians. I can't even begin to tell you how much time I have to spend or we collectively have to spend trying to figure out who is this person before us, uh, what's their previous health conditions, what medicines are they on. All that stuff takes a lot of time. And sometimes we don't have that much time to make this fully informed decision with as much accurate information. And then who do we call? 
I call anybody that has their name in their cell phone or anybody in their address book. No, I want to call the people who they've designated that I should talk to about their situation. So it's more important now than ever. And, and Nathan, I mean, Dan, you, you touched on this somewhat, but Nathan, from a legal perspective, what can happen when these conversations haven't taken place and when there is no advanced declaration? Uh, there's a variety of things that can happen. First and foremost, the most common is simply defaulting to the pecking order that's in applicable state law. And it usually runs spouse and then children and other family members. The problem is once you leave the spouse category, you have multiples for every one of those. And so that introduces the very real possibility of conflict because you're supposed to go with the majority rule. So what do you do if you have two? In my experience, and Dan probably has seen this too, when you have three children, it's not two against one, it's A, B, and C, and you don't have a majority. So that's one of the ways. I also remember very vividly a case I was involved in several years ago with a woman who she was divorced. She had a young child who, of course, was under the age of 18 and couldn't be her decision maker. And she was living temporarily with a, with a close friend of hers. And she had some sort of stomach pain, went to the hospital thinking it wasn't that big of a deal. And six hours later, she was in major surgery and having all sorts of things done. And she was that one in a hundred, one in a thousand cases where something did go wrong and she ended up in a coma. And so there were lots of red flags. She's divorced. She's about to go into major surgery. And the clinicians allowed this woman to get to that stage without asking who her decision maker would be. And so what ended up happening is two different law firms, hundreds of hours of staff time, formal declaration of guardianship was done, but only after we had to get court-ordered treatment in the meantime. I think it was $100,000 in, in legal fees over the course of just like four days, all of which was avoidable if the staff had simply had maybe a three-minute conversation. So I think that's one of the, the ones that we, we look at and we see that simple steps can have a really, really profound effect on the law. I would hope that any CFO of any organization would take a look at the difference there. You got five minutes of conversation, might maybe by a nurse compared to $100,000 and hours of, of staff time devoted to this big mess. It's not really a legal thing, but I'd also like to add to, to our uh, organizational clients that they actually have some power in this that I feel like they're not wielding. And what I'm talking about is the electronic health records vendors. There's only a handful of like the really, really big ones. And I have not found that any of them are particularly great with handling this issue of advanced care planning. And so when I talk with clients about this, particularly hospital clients, they say, oh, well, it's just the way that the system is built. And I said, wait a second, aren't you the client? Go back to those vendors and say, we need to make this a priority. It, it needs to be a dashboard item. It needs to be up there in front and it needs to be available when the patient is discharged and comes back the next time as well. So I think those are ways that, you know, some of this is legal, some of it's practical, some of it's just basic human dignity stuff. There's so much wrapped up in, in this and so much room for improvement. Just share uh, the importance also of uh, contacting hospice and palliative care early. Historically, these have been things that like you throw in the towel. We don't know what else to do with the patient. Let's call those folks. Uh, the number one complaint about hospice care that I hear is I didn't call hospice sooner. You know, if you're getting, if, if I got a bad diagnosis, even if I had, knew I was going to survive for years, I'd start checking out hospices now. And palliative care, lots of studies show that 
early palliative care intervention results in longer life for patients, better quality of life, and less expense. But I want to share one anecdote. I'll try and make it very short. It changed my life many, many years ago. It was an elderly woman who was found collapsed at home, brought to the rushed to the emergency room. To make a long story short, she had a massive intracranial hemorrhage from which there was no possible recovery. We went through all the evaluation for that, of course. And as the family trickled in, I was going back and forth, shuttling, telling them information, taking care of the patient and doing other things. And the family got into this big conflict and they were screaming and yelling in the family room. And the people who knew her best said, let grandma die in peace. And the people who are coming in more remote over the period of several hours saying, do everything for her. You know, and I was facing this and they were really getting uh, angry with each other. But she had complete advanced directive. Someone got it. I read it. And it said, if I'm an extremist, uh, no hope of recovery, I, I will allow, allow me to die peacefully without full CPR and all the other stuff that goes on. So I went back in the room with the advanced directive. And finally, after all the yelling calmed down, they looked at me. It was time for the doctor to say something. And I said, this is what she wants. Uh, and so I'm honor bound. I'm legally bound to follow her wishes. It's the patient determines. And, and I, it's like she was talking to me. Now, you might think at that point it gets more hysterical, but actually just the opposite happened. Everybody calmed down and, I, and, and took a deep breath. And I said, I'm going to go to the room and I'm going to extubate her, take a tube out of the windpipe, disconnect the medicines that are keeping her heart beating and her blood pressure up, and you can come with me. So they all came in the room with me. I did those things and I went to the back of the room and watched what happened. What happened was the family coalesced together at the head of the bed. They held her hand, they stroked her brow, they said some prayers, they sang some songs, they whispered in her ear, and she died peacefully over a couple of hour period, and that family came together. The alternative would have been maybe in an intensive care unit for several days, a long vegetative state, maybe in a nursing home, and a family at war with each other. And uh, I looked at that woman, I don't remember her name, and I thought, this woman has given me a lesson. It's not about me. It's if I really take care of the people who I say I love, I'll do what she did, complete the paperwork. So I went home that night to my wife, said, Shelly, we're completing our advanced directives. We're young, we're healthy, but who knows what's going to happen? And that was a pivotal moment uh, for me, seeing the conflicts, but I've also seen the value of taking, and that, that was one that really changed my perspective and uh, woke me up to this whole issue and the importance of completing uh, advanced directives and doing advanced care planning. And Dan, you've, you've talked a lot about your role as an emergency medicine physician. I'd like to talk more about your role as a, as a former legislator. Uh, you de dedicated your political career to simplifying government, and yet states have different requirements, and the requirements aren't always streamlined what can be done? Is there a standard document that anyone can download and use? Uh, there are standard documents, and Nathan, feel free to weigh in. Most of them just require two witnesses. Uh, the persons have to be disinterested witnesses. Uh, in Maryland, we do have an electronic advance directive system, which allows a witnessing electronically. After all, if you can go online and plan around the world trip or buy a car, you certainly ought to be able to witness an advance directive. I think about eight or 10 states, seven states that require no a notary, but you can just do this on your own. I like mydirectives.com. It's the one I personally use, not a non-paid advertisement. It just happens. But there are others. Cake is one. Uh, and it's easy just to print out and do those. And uh, they're, they're more and more flexible. Uh, Nathan makes a good point, And I agree, they're not part of the electronic health record routinely. We've struggled with that in my state. And it ought to be right up there with everything else. Uh, when I look at the screen and, and see all the tabs that I have to consider as I'm taking care of a patient, a patient in a screen and trying to negotiate all the stuff, well, there's lab tests and all these other things, but where's the advanced directive tab? That ought to be right up there too. And it would also prompt me to recheck with them. This is what I'm seeing here. Is this still current? Oh, great. It is. Wonderful. It isn't. Well, maybe it's time for you to 
update it because things change in life. So we've got work to do, but it starts with individuals. Only you can complete your advanced direct, not your elected official, not your hospital, not your lawyer, you. So everybody that's listening, if you haven't completed advanced directive, please do so. If you had, go out there and be the change agent who's willing to bring this up to your to others and say, have you done it? And sometimes you have to repeat that a number of times over months till the ideas uh, sink in and the value comes uh, more apparent. So we've got work to do but we're on the right track. Uh, this is a way, really good way to get started today. Um, one of the things that I would just add to that is I think across the country, we need to make this whole process and the documents, first of all, more uniform. we got to get rid of the 10 states across the country that require a notary for these that serves as a very real impediment to something that's such an easy thing to do. And, and there are states, yes, I'm talking to you, Illinois, that have required statements. They run three or four pages of essentially informed consent to do something as simple as name who you want to make decisions for you if you can't make decisions for yourself. So we, as a, as a legal profession, have done a great service to the American public by making advanced directives possible. We've also done a major disservice by making them very legal documents. They shouldn't be legal documents. They should just be human documents. So I think if I had my legal magic wand, I would standardize it so that you would have a single form that would work across the country. There would be no different rules in terms of how you sign it, who can be the signer, whether it's informed notary, all that stuff. It would just be across the, the, the country. But unfortunately, the way that we have it set up right now, we don't have a mechanism for a national law. So we deal with differences by state. Yeah, as a state legislator, I was very involved with the National Conference of State Legislatures. Every every profession has its own club. And I was chair of the Innovations and in Healthcare Task Force. And I brought this up uh, to everybody because it was gatherings of state legislatures uh, interested in healthcare issues. And I think a number of them took the message back to their states and they're trying in different ways. We have made other advances. There's a thing called uh, medical orders or physician orders for life-sustaining treatment that goes into another level of clinical decision-making that an advanced directive does not. It's more like a medical order. Um, and so that's uh, in about 25 states now. These are things that citizens, if they're motivated, can bring up to their state legislators and their governors and say, we really ought to simplify this, Illinois or whatever, uh, make it simpler and easier. One other thing is, do we recognize uh, clinically an advanced directive from another state? So Maryland on the map, you know, it's kind of a cookie cutter state with a lot of borders. It's not like California that's like a, a country unto itself. So I get patients who are brought in from Pennsylvania or Delaware sometimes or other places or they're driving through from north to south and they get in an accident, they come to the hospital I work in, which is right off one of the major uh, throughways. And um, they have their advanced directive and, and everybody gets, oh, should I honor this or not? Well, my response has always been if they had an EKG and a blood test from Pennsylvania, I would honor that. Why wouldn't I honor their advanced directive? It's the same thing. Now, I'm a little bit unique in this, but that is part of my perspective on this. We'll go for any shred of information we can. Any document that we can is better than nothing. And uh, I carry one in my glove compartment and I have my advanced directive scanned down to a little QR code that I uh, keep in my wallet. I could be traveling in another state, getting an accident. You know, my records are not in that hospital area, not in Virginia, let's say. And uh, but they can scan that and get all that information, not only my advanced directive, but who to call, medical history and other things. So we're, we should be taking full advantage. It can also all be downloaded onto cell phones now um, where you have an emergency 
contact. Let me just say as a clinician, it would make clinical care better, faster, and more accurate and more personalized for people if we knew just a little bit more about them when they came in in these situations. Well, and we've talked about those that may not have an advocate, right? So as we prepare for this and consider, you know, why some people might not have that, you know, what do you do in those those situations where there's not an obvious advocate? Well, clinically, we struggle. We do the best we can. I mean, one of the things about emergency medicine personnel is we're very creative and inventive and uh, and we're always going to make the decisions that we need to make. We're not going to be paralyzed. But is are we really doing what, what's the best for the patient? And for little bits of information that ought to be readily available, we could do so much better. And that's and and the and the thing of all of this is it's free. I mean, how, where, when do you get so much benefit for completing something that costs nothing? It's just you sit down for about twenty minutes, go through a form, have a couple of conversations with whoever are your advisors, be they uh, spiritual, legal, medical, or whatever. In the studies that we did uh, through uh, Johns Hopkins, we asked people where do you want to get the information about advanced directives, and over. It was healthcare professional, although there was a broad uh, swath from uh, faith-based and uh, legal as well and internet. However, you get there for 20 minutes of paperwork, uh, much easier than completing our taxes, which is coming up July 15. Much easier to complete advanced directive than to go through your taxes and understand all that stuff. Uh, and, and what's going on much easier than trying to understand what's going on in COVID com- medically and socially and all the rules around public health perspective it takes 20 minutes to complete advanced direct. You have to think about it for a while. The actual physical act of completing the paperwork is what, five, 10, 15 minutes. And then you share it with a few folks. I copied all of ours, uh, our family groupings and sent out to all the adult children and others. And, um, you know, and then, we put it away and don't think about it until such a time as it becomes needed. And Morgan, you were talking about the person that really just doesn't have anybody. And, and obviously we, we would hope that nobody is in that situation, but you know, we have people these days who are outlive all of their friends and their family and things like that. Um, so for those folks, I would start with a written advance directive, so that living will. So you have something put down. But there are uh, services that have evolved in the last 10, 15 years or so um, that you can actually hire someone to be your healthcare agent, sort of like hiring a lawyer to serve as a custodian of your accounts or something like that. So those are out there too. Um, They're not very many of them, but if people search for them, they can certainly find them. But hopefully no one would ever get to that stage. I I think the reality is we all have someone and some of us might need institutional support uh, to find out who that person is. But I think we've all got some options available to us. Sometimes it's the neighbor who knows the family member better than the family and they will designate that person. I could make Nathan my uh, healthcare agent if after a discussion with him. It doesn't have to be my spouse. It can be anybody that you respect and value who understands you. And actually thinking about this makes you think about some of those things and your values and who you really uh, trust in making these decisions on your behalf. But without having done it, it's a gap. And sometimes it ends up in the hands of a hospital ethics committee on which Nathan has served. And those are people who may not even know you. They're going to do the best they can in those committees to try to make a decision. But they don't actually usually know you personally. And and this is about making it very, it can be very personal. And so it's a simple thing to take advantage of. So, Nathan, we've talked to some extent about your healthcare client. National Healthcare Decisions Day is, is focused primarily on helping individuals prepare for end of life. But it's it's more than that. Our 
providers doing as much as they should? And how can hospitals, dialysis clinics, primary care physicians, et cetera, what can they do to make this process easier? Well, I've talked about some of the institutional organizational uh, care things that can be done, but let me switch it a little bit and talk about uh, the human dynamic. For many people, their work work situation, their colleagues, is as close as family. And one of the things we have to recognize is that the healthcare professions uh, are not significantly better off with respect to their rates of completion of advanced care plans. So here you have people who are dealing with with health issues every single day, and they're, they're not doing their advanced care plans either, which has two implications. The first when it comes to delivering care, you're just not as good at it. You know, you don't have to have the same choices as your patient, but if you haven't gone through the very tough mental exercise of trying to figure out what you want, who among your children should be your primary decision maker, it's going to be that much harder to do it with a patient. The second piece of it is we are sitting on a huge potential pool of folks that can help spread the word. So National Healthcare Decisions Day is all about trying to encourage everybody to do this. And we encourage everyone to lead by example. So if you had a hospital or any healthcare institution that sends out something to their employees on the employee level and says, hey, it's National Healthcare Decisions Day. We want every single one of you to have an advanced care plan. We care about you. We never want anything to happen, particularly in this day and age of COVID. Um, But please do this. It's for yourself. It's for your loved ones. And then encourage others to do that. If we could get every healthcare provider, if every one of our clients at Waller uh, could do that with their own employees, we'd move the dial a big amount. Who knows how much? It doesn't matter. Every incremental step that we can take in this is doing a huge, immeasurable amount of, of public good. And what's tricky too, I will, I will readily admit, is we can't measure it right now. This is stuff that we're doing for the future, but it's sort of like you know saving for retirement. If you don't do it now, it's going to be too late. And I would applaud all of that. And let me just add that my book, Preparing for a Better End from Johns Hopkins Press, goes into all these issues in a very readable, accessible way. Uh, Nathan gave a wonderful endorsement. So did a lot of other well-known people. And so that is available from pre-orders now from Johns Hopkins Press and from Amazon. Uh, It's another approach to try to get the word out that addresses all the issues that we've discussed and some others that we haven't. But this National Healthcare Decisions Day, July 16th, is a great opportunity to be able to give people a, a way to bring it up. And say, are you aware this is National Healthcare Decisions Day? Have you completed your advanced directive? Have you thought about it? I know it's hard. I know it's tough. It may not be your first thing to do, but it's something that's really important. So appreciate everybody listening to this and take a look at the book, Preparing for a Better End, Johns Hopkins Press. You've both mentioned a number of resources that can be help, helpful for our listeners, but is there anything else, any place that they should go to access more information on the topic? Morgan, thanks. Um, I would direct people to the National Healthcare Decisions Day website, which is nhdd.org. All sorts of information, all of it's free. We've got links to forms for all the 50 states. We've even got some dedicated links for certain religious backgrounds and things like that. And we also have some videos. There are wonderful conversation starters um, there's one in particular, it says imagine on it. And I tell people, if you hit pause, hit play on that three minutes later, if you don't have one of those beautiful conversations with your family, I, I want to hear about it because something's gone wrong. Um, I also do just while we're talking about the website, just want to give a, a shout out to Conversation Project, which is the, the host of the website for National Healthcare Decisions Day. And, um, they've got a wonderful array of resources as well. And we, we would not be where we are without the Conversation Project. But the website, nhdd.org. And it's there all year. It's not just for National Healthcare Decisions Day. Those, those resources are, are available. 
trouble. And after this July 16 event, we'll be going back to the ordinary April 16, assuming that COVID doesn't uh, throw off the tax day again. Well, thank you all so much. This this conversation has really been informative, and I hope that it drives others to action and to ask themselves questions and their family members appreciate your time today. Morgan, thanks so much for having us. This is wonderful. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Nathan. It's been an honor to participate. Thank you for listening to this episode of Point by Point, brought to you by Waller. Visit the news and insights section of our website to listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, find show notes and more.